0: You are listening to As a Woman, episode 97, Postpartum with Dr. Mommy M.D. In this episode, we are talking about being physicians and being new moms and the struggle that it is to adjust to the fourth trimester for all moms everywhere and what we can do about it. Welcome to as a woman, the podcast hosted by
1: fertility physician,
0: Dr. Natalie Crawford to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hey friends, welcome back. Today, I am talking with Dr. Michelle Rockwell, She goes by Dr. Mommy MD and all of these social places about what it is like adjusting to new motherhood, especially as a physician, because that's our experience. This topic is very near and dear to me. And the reason why I want to start this discussion is that so many of us are not prepared. We don't know what to expect, we suffer in silence, and we don't know what is normal. And you know I've said it before. If we don't know what's normal, how do we know what is not? It is okay for this transition period to be hard, and it is okay to get help. Shelley is a family medicine physician. She has extra trained in a fellowship in sports medicine. She is married to another physician, and she is a mom of two. You are going to love how she is shifting her focus as a family medicine physician on to helping moms in this postpartum time. And I'm so thrilled to have her on today. All right. I am so excited to have Shelly here. Shelly, thank you so much for coming on the As A Woman podcast to talk with us today. Thanks for having me, Nat. So I want to start by just having you tell everybody, how did you get into medicine? Why did you pick medicine? Did you always want to be a doctor? Where did this come from for you?
1: So, uh, not at all. Um, Nobody in my family is a physician. Actually, my dad is the only person who went to college, Um, and I actually thought I was going to be a teacher, which, you know, I went to NYU. I was an English major. I thought I was going to be an English professor, and then I realized that my life would consist of reading Shakespeare every day and talking about (laughs) the same thing year after year, and I didn't to see fulfillment in that. I wanted to be doing something that would move the world forward, come up with new research, help people. And so I actually had heart surgery when I was a junior in high school and had a really, really good relationship with my pediatric cardiologist. And that's kind of what planted the seed for me to become a doctor. So I thought as a physician, I could be like a teacher because most of your job is education. Right. And yes. I could also do research and I could help people all at once. So that's kind of where I took a turn.
0: So you were, in, you were in college, right? When you kind of made this decision. So you were yeah. on English major path.
1: I was like the end of my junior year of college. So people out there, you do not need to know exactly what you want to do with your life. You can always make a change. Um, and I was like trying to figure out how I could fit in all of the prereqs for med school in my senior year. And it was just impossible. So I ended up doing a post-bac pre-med program at Columbia, which was a two-year program. Studied some orthopedics there because you have to do like a lag year. So I did research. Um, and I thought I wanted to be a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon. That was the goal. Yeah. (laughs) So with my history, that's kind of where I thought I would end up.
0: So you were interested. So this is fascinating to me. One, I like the, you don't have to make your whole life planned. You know, when you're 15, you can definitely decide once you're already on one road, you can change. And two, it is totally fine if the process may take you longer than your peers, right? You took a couple years Mm -hmm. because that was just the road that was the best to get you into medicine. Yeah, I
1: ended up being like three years behind everyone else.
0: Three years behind. And then when you were in medicine, so once you're in medical school, you're going down the pathway thinking, I want to do pediatric cardiothoracic surgery. And when did that change? What happened there?
1: Yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, I was gung-ho about it until during rotations, I had my surgery rotation, and I absolutely loved it, and I still thought I was going to do that. I, I was shadowing one of the only female pediatric cardiothoracic surgeons in the country. I was in the OR all the time, and I loved everything about it except for the fact that they were never home, and you're getting called in all the time, and I knew I wanted a family, and I know you shouldn't make your decisions based on that. And I, I don't think that I actually did, but my next rotation was family medicine. And I went into that thinking, oh, it's just going to be nine to five, weekends off. It's going to be so easy. Like, who cares? Just like an easy rotation. I'll get what I can out of it and move on. But I ended up loving it, like totally unexpectedly. So and just out like, of the two, well,
0: yeah, you do family medicine and you see people in every stage of their life and you have to know like the most of any physician and that re- something about that really resonated with you.
1: Yeah. I loved that you could do procedures. Um, in my, uh, school, we actually did a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. like mom and baby care. And so I got to see a little bit of everything. And I was like, well, if there's something I love just as much, if not more than surgery, and it has a better lifestyle, then why not pursue that?
0: Have you gotten any of the rhetoric that at least went around when I was in medical school about family medicine being looked down as a medical specialty?
1: Yes, like big time. Um, It was a really hard decision for me to make because I feel like I kind of had to swallow my pride in a way because, wow, like you say, pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon and everyone's like, oh my gosh, like that's amazing. And then you say family medicine doctor, and it's just like, oh, cool, you're a doctor.
0: I have no idea why this is, to be honest. When I did my family medicine rotation, I felt, I was like, wow, I don't know that I could do this because it's so hard. You know, it really is... Having a lot of different skill sets relating to a lot of different types of people, needing to be able to communicate and educate at all different age points, being up to date on everybody's different needs. It felt like a huge amount of information and then upkeep to do it. So I, but i but I knew that. I knew the people going into family medicine and I have friends who were family medicine residents, and there was this, I don't want to say stigma, but there was just this thing that it was, oh, the easy peasy residency, which I have no idea where that really came from. And I think social media has done a really great job of showing family medicine physicians who are doing really amazing things and what the field really is about. Do you feel like social media has helped in any way kind of share more light to family medicine? Or maybe you feel the opposite. What's your thought there?
1: No, I definitely agree with you. I feel like in family medicine, what you said is exactly true. We have to know, you know, a little bit about everything and we get to see all types of people literally cradle to the grave. Um, but what I find most fascinating about it is how everyone finds their little niche and everyone has such passion for some kind of sub aspect of it. And it allows you to do so many different things. I mean, there's so many fellowships, there's sports medicine, you could do ultrasound, you could do adolescent medicine. So, and you could do geriatric medicine. I mean, sleep medicine. I don't even know. There's so many, I can't even keep track, but you could really kind of subspecialize too, which is what I ended up doing.
0: So you ended up subspecializing in like orthopedics, right? Sports Mm -hmm. medicine.
1: Sports medicine, yeah. So, so, what drew you into
0: that lane? Because you're kind of creating a new one now from there.
1: Yeah, yeah. My, I've been all over the map, but really, sports medicine appealed to me because of the amount of procedures you could use. So, I felt like I still had that surgical aspect of it. Um, I did a lot of ultrasound guided injections. I did uh, spinal injections. So, so I got to have some procedure days and some clinic days, and it really varied what I was doing from day to day. And I also really just love kind of like the pathophysiology of musculoskeletal issues and how the body moves and works. So that was really interesting to me. When in this
0: process, did you have your kids or did you start trying to have your kids?
1: So my husband and I met during my fellowship year at University of Utah, and he was my CrossFit coach. (laughs) I love that. I don't think I knew that. (laughs) Um, But so we ended up after my fellowship year, during my fellowship year, we did a year apart. And so he moved for medical school and, and I stayed for my fellowship. And then I ended up moving out to Virginia where he was in med school And I got my first attending job at a Division I school, Virginia Tech.
0: And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, It's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So, whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know the women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. Their essential and ritual knows this. I choose ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for women 18 plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. So cool. So did you know when you met him was going to medicine part of his plan or did that happen over the course of your relationship?
1: kind of. So he actually had applied to medical school twice already. Um and didn't get in, but he was in the, the process of applying one more time and he actually got into a post-bac program out in Virginia that you're guaranteed entry into the school if you got like a perfect GPA. That's
0: really cool. So, so he
1: was definitely pursuing it. Suddenly here you are, you're in your training,
0: so you are one of the people who I love this part of your story said I want to pick a field that will resonate with me being able to have the life I want to have because I want to be a mom, but I'm not with a partner at this time period, right? So we are planning for our future, yet it's it's so undetermined. Then you find a partner and then it turns out you get to be like a two doctor household and you're having to like re-plan your career along with someone else's training, which is incredibly difficult,
1: yeah, it's been pretty wild because you know when I was in fellowship, I still really loved sports medicine, even though I encountered a lot of you know sexism and misogyny, and it was really hard for me as a female in sports medicine, especially with like a Division One football team. Um, I still really liked it. I really still loved working with the athletes, but when it came to the fact that we were going to be moving so frequently. And then also, again, planning for a family, it just didn't seem like the right career for me in the long term because sports are, you know, 24 seven. It's all weekend, all evenings. You're on call all the time. Whenever those athletes need you, you better be there. Yeah, so, and there's no
0: off season because you're no. training and you're in camps, right? Mm-hmm. So it's always on. And it's a really neat profession. I think, I think most people think that's yeah, it's it's awesome. Really cool, but it is something that you've got to really, I think be committed that that's your true passion to make it worth what it's going to take from a sacrifice stance, which if that's your true passion, that's awesome. But you started having inklings that maybe it was something you were good at and you really liked, but that your true passions in medicine may lay somewhere else. Did this happen over the course of you being pregnant and giving birth? Or when did you start thinking that perhaps your spot in medicine... Maybe more in the you know mother baby newborn postpartum time period.
1: Yeah. So when I got pregnant with Mason, um, it was my first year as a attending. Actually, it was uh, on my honeymoon or a couple of days before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I that's when I started kind of being on social media and started my page, Dr. Mommy MD. I kind of started that as a way to connect with other moms because really. I'm an only child. I'd, I'd never really been around babies or kids other than taking care of them in my clinic. So, you know, I wanted to learn more about motherhood myself and connect with other moms who have been through it before, kind of also wanted to j- like journal almost about what I've, what I'm going through and the whole process. um, yeah. and so just during that process and and having Mason and realizing how much harder it is to become a mother and just motherhood in general than than we're led to believe in a way, is kind of what made me want to just take care of moms and babies for the rest of my life.
0: I just resonate so much with this because here is, you know, as I was in the position, I was a, you know, infertility fellow when I had my first child. So I'd gone through all of OBGYN residency. I felt like I was, you know, the pregnancy birth expert. Like I had held thousands of babies in their first moments of life. I knew how to swaddle them like a pro. And I had no idea what to expect. Even in my pregnancy, I found myself like researching in these non-medical sites and these forums trying to figure out, is this normal? Is this not? And then kept feeling like, isn't this so strange because I'm OBGYN, yet some of these things that are not necessarily medically related, we just don't talk about. And then when I had Campbell, I was like, I didn't have any idea. I didn't know how to breastfeed. I was so unprepared for what to do with her. I really remember Jason and I looking at each other when they were like, hey, you're doing great. And it's like post-op day two, do you want to go home? We're like, okay, sure. And then we get, they were like, what on earth are we doing with her? You know? (laughs) Yeah. We ended up, she was growth restricted and she wasn't eating enough. And I was trying to, I was really, I loved UNC, but it was a very heavy breast is best hospital. And like, they didn't even have formula to offer you. And I think I felt such immense pressure that I am type A and I was going to breastfeed no matter what, that I didn't even realize she was not getting enough till we started taking another pediatrician and she was losing weight. And there's just so much pressure in that new mom period that nobody talks about. And I didn't feel like I had the forum or the resources to say, Hey, what's going on and what's normal and how do I do this? This was way before I was on Instagram. So I love, and I totally feel like I know, like I'm your clientele. Like I am your person because I was that person (laughs) as well when I went through it. And if we are two physicians sitting here, feeling this way, highly educated people that, Imagine somebody who's got no training in the human body or what's normal or what's not normal. I really feel like there's so much work to be done in that space.
1: Yeah, I feel like, you know, after I had Mason or even before, so I started reading all of these books like, what's the best schedule to have your baby on? And like all these breastfeeding books. And after I had him, like, same thing. I remember just sitting on the couch scrolling through like textbook after textbook on you know how to do it the quote right way and there is no right way really but
0: it's so stressful I'm just sitting here thinking about the schedule (laughs) feed and this and sleep or do you do when do you do play and it especially for somebody who's got very limited time in that recovery period or you know that maternity leave I don't know about you but I had very little time and it just felt like there was more pressure and more stuff to get done
1: Yeah, I also feel like at that time period, I mean, that was, like, three and a half years ago or so, I I still feel like social media was, like, focused on this, like, totally beautiful, like, postpartum period where everything was perfect, your house was spotless, you did the dishes, you cooked, like, it was still just that kind of fantasy world of what it should look like in motherhood. And I'm pretty grateful to say I feel like now things are better and and getting better and people are more honest about it, even though social media is still, you know, a visual platform and people like to make things look pretty. I think that they talk more about kind of the nitty gritty stuff of motherhood.
0: I think so, too. I think, I mean, I feel that way about social media in general. It's not perfect. And yes, at times it's a highlight reel but I feel like there's a lot of people talking very transparently about, you know, negative things and real life stuff. You have been open about your journey with postpartum depression. When, you know, what was that like for you? What's your story? And did you even realize that's what was going on when it was happening?
1: Yeah. The crazy thing is I'm a physician and I did not realize that that's what was happening. I didn't know that like my feelings weren't normal because it was the first time I was a mom. So I thought, oh, I'm just tired. Oh, life is just different. Oh, it will get better tomorrow or next week or next month. And eventually it just never did. So um, I feel like at the beginning, things weren't that bad. Tyler was home with me for the very first month. um, And he was a, what was he, a fourth year medical student? And so he ended up going away for five straight months of away rotations. And I was basically at home parenting by myself for the very first time. Um, And no fault of his. It's just the way that it was. And it was just, you know, that part of our life. And, you know, I was really lonely. I was really overwhelmed. I'm very type A, as many of us in medicine are. And I, you know, having the house messy stressed me out and gave me anxiety And, and I would just cry and I felt like I wasn't present with him. And I knew like in my heart that I shouldn't like feel so sad, but at the same time, I felt like guilty to admit it almost because so many women, like and even friends of mine were struggling with either miscarriage or infertility. And I literally had like everything I ever wanted like I had the best husband, we had a beautiful home. I had like a great job. I was finally a doctor, like finally all these things were happening, but I wasn't happy.
0: It feels like that guilt just compounds itself, right? Because you get into this cycle where you can't win because you then are beating yourself up over how you're feeling instead of maybe saying, oh, this is something that happens to over 15% of new moms. And when I think about statistics, I think about this infertility all the time. More people are talking about infertility. The stigma is starting to go down there. I feel like the stigma is still super high for postpartum depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And when you think about, you know, 15%, you know, one out of every six to eight of your friends is struggling with something, yet how many people are being open and honest about what it is? And- That's really tough. And the thing I say about to my infertility patients is, you know, you have a world of people that want to help you, but if they don't know you need help, they're not going to be able to. And so admitting it to yourself and being open with other people is the best thing you can do for yourself. But we feel this desire to say, No, I don't need help. I can do it. This isn't how I feel. How did you start to recognize what was going on? How did you How did you get help? Or what do you wish you could go back and do different?
1: Yeah, I feel like that's something I very, very much struggled with because I am really strong-willed, really stubborn, and I definitely feel like I should be doing everything on my own. And so asking for help in the first place was probably the most important thing that I learned Um, even like if I needed to take a nap or take a shower, I felt so guilty to like ask my parents to come over, ask a friend to come over. But as moms, like we just don't have that village necessarily that we used to have and we're expected to do everything on our own, but we shouldn't have to. And, you know, if you're overwhelmed or if you want to sit down and eat your lunch without a baby in your lap it's okay to call a friend and say, hey, do you want to come over and bring lunch and, and hold the baby for a minute while I eat? Like just those little things that other people would be so grateful to be able to do for you. But kind of, I don't know, just having the willpower to actually ask for it is the hard thing.
0: What do you think about in a COVID world, how we can encourage women to get help when they're feeling isolated and alone because I love what you said and I definitely didn't do that even though I know there were people who could have come and helped me I really felt this strong I don't even know that it was a conscious feeling but this subconscious feeling that I could do it so many Mm -hmm. other people had done it I could do things and I could get through it but I don't know what do we tell women right now where it's not really the world where you can maybe call your neighbor and say can you come help me or how do we help support women you know who are struggling with, you know, maybe it's finding a community,
1: maybe it's with
0: other resources. What advice do you have for those women?
1: I feel like that's really hard because physically it may be difficult or even impossible for someone to come over and help them. Um, But also as like a first time mom, I remember like, I would not let Mason cry for like more than a second, like out of my arms before I like needed to pick him up and comfort him. And not to say that I just like leave Parker willy-nilly, but it's like, well, if I need to like take the clothes out of the dryer and he is upset for five minutes, like it's okay. So I think that that's a really important thing to remember too. Like your kids are going to be okay. Kids have been left, you know, in worse conditions, you know, not saying that you just leave them alone forever, but if you need to do something, if you need to eat, if you need to take a shower, like, you know, put your, kid in a laundry basket outside your shower and take that shower like you know where you know that they'll be okay and take that five minutes for you
0: yeah that bouncy seat situation I don't feel like I really (laughs) utilized that enough where you can strap them into a safe spot and Mm -hmm. they don't have to be constantly you know entertained or you can still supervise them while you wash your hair because something as simple as washing your hair can make you feel so much better What other things do you think in that initial postpartum period that we see new moms struggling with that we don't talk about enough ahead of time?
1: I mean, I really do feel like it's kind of like those basic needs, like making sure you're drinking enough water, making sure you're sleeping as much as you can, um, eating. I mean, I... I feel like I hardly ate ever because I was making sure that my baby was fed and that other things were done that I would hardly ever sit down for a meal. Taking a shower was like the biggest luxury ever. Um, or just getting out of the house, like sitting outside. Um, I realized you know, when I had Parker, that that's something that really made me feel better just to be outdoors. So with him, I would just sit outside with him while he napped instead of sitting inside. I feel like there's little changes that you can make that can make all the difference in your mood. Um, and they're very doable with babies. If you pay attention to those things that make you happier, bring you a little bit of joy.
0: I agree with you completely. And I feel like I know what your answer is going to be here, but what is your take on the, you know breast is best. I feel like social media has actually made this worse in a way because Mm -hmm. it has started in a maybe a grassroots good effort to say, you should be able to breastfeed anywhere and let's normalize breastfeeding, which I'm a huge proponent of. There's also some associated societal pressure that if you're not breastfeeding, you're not doing it as well as other people. So as a physician, as somebody who's specializing in this you know, mommy, baby, postpartum period, how do you counsel patients on should I breastfeed or breastfeeding is difficult or what to expect when breastfeeding?
1: It is way harder than we're led to believe. Way, way harder. This is one of the main things that I struggled with with Mason too. We went to lactation consultants. I had pain. I ended up finding out I had a vasospasm um, and, you know, thinking about it, I think you know he probably had tongue tie and all these things i had so many issues and i was crying all night because i felt like i wasn't giving him enough milk and i think to a point of course like breastfeeding is great it's healthy for your baby they get many benefits from it but if it's compromising your mental health then in my opinion it's not worth it just do what you can do your best and and if you're done with it then that's fine And that's great too. I think it's really good to be able to make that decision for yourself.
0: Yeah. I think we still have work to do on that arena by just supporting moms and understanding that in that new mother period, you are the one, you know, you have to put on your own air mask first. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we give new moms enough grace to say that this is going to be a very difficult time. And it's not all about losing your baby weight and getting your baby body back or whatever, because I do feel like that is this other huge pressure you need to. And if you're a professional woman, you've got to get back to work, act like you didn't have a baby, look like you didn't have to have a baby, never talk about the baby, find time to pump for the baby, but don't compromise (laughs) your clinical care. Don't cry because you missed the baby. Still go home, still answer emergency calls overnight, get to the OR on time. I mean... It's
1: That's crazy. Like, yeah. It's like so have much. a baby,
0: but then come back to work and act like you didn't have a baby. I feel like that is the message that I got when I was doing this. I know so many other professional women, you know, not just medicine, but overall, you're suddenly supposed to go back and be normal and you have this very short leave and it's this immense amount of pressure. We are set up
1: to fail. Don't you think? Yeah. It's really, really sad. And I think just recognizing that and saying it out loud and, you know, the fact that women are talking about it more and more and talking to each other about how much pressure they're feeling, it, it really does help. So it helps you recognize that you're not alone. What do you want
0: to tell new moms as far as warning symptoms? Let's say if you are feeling X, Y, or Z way about whatever, you need to do something, you need to call your doctor, you need to reach out to somebody, this is not normal. So where do we say maybe it's different between I'm feeling new parent stressed, because obviously, that's not going to be just like a walk in the park, versus, hey, I think something more is going on. What What do you tell somebody, these are the things to look out for or when you need to reach out for help?
1: Right. So if you look at it in the textbooks, it's really easy to tell, but in real life for me, it was hard. Um, Technically like baby blues shouldn't last more than two weeks, but you know, your exhaustion as a new parent is going to last, you know, for many years. Uh, So for me, I'd say, you know, if you find yourself, you know, crying a lot, feeling like you're not good enough for me, I also had anxiety. So I felt the need to control a lot of things like weighing the breast milk that I was putting in the freezer every day to like say exactly how much I had and calculating how much I needed to get him to a year, like different things like that. Um, and I think another thing people don't talk about a lot is like anger or rage, like not like you're going to hurt your baby rage, but just, you know, being angry at your partner or snapping at them, being resentful of your partner, you know, when they're sleeping and you're breastfeeding, these are all kind of signs that things, you know, are not going the way that they should be. And I have to say, like, I, I actually started medication after having Parker. I did not with, you know, my postpartum depression with Mason. And I didn't even know that you could be this happy before that. Like it was like a switch was flipped, and I'm on like the lowest dose of Zoloft, just a tiny amount, and it changed my life. And I feel like so many people are very hesitant to get on medication, and I was. I mean, it took me three years, really, um, to do it. I mean, I did therapy after Mason, and it and it helped a lot. And I think time just helped, um, but really, medication helped me so, so much. And so if anyone out there is hesitant about it, just give it a shot. It doesn't have to be forever. If you hate it, then you could stop.
0: I think that's so empowering though to say, Hey, I'm on antidepressants and it helped me, you know, it's not something to be stigmatized as much as it is. It's a very hard time period and there's so much going on. It's not just a one-way street. So especially when you're getting pregnant, With your second, then you have another baby to care for. It's not like you can say, "I'm gonna sleep when the baby sleeps," because you have another (laughs) child that needs, you know. And I found uh, that's when I really struggled was with Rhett because I didn't know what to do with Campbell. But when I had Rhett, there was just there was no downtime. There was no downtime Mm -hmm. at all. And even though Jason's amazing, I made him. I mean, he would get up when I breastfeed just to see if I need anything, and he he was so helpful. But when you have two, it's like you have to, and they're very close in age, you have to split them up, you know? Hey, you're connect,
1: tag teaming. <laughs> we literally would
0: have like, he'd have Campbell's monitor and I'd have Brett next to the bed and you just are trying to make it work. And so that was like a whole nother dimension of difficulty adding in, you know, another child. When, you know, let's, I had a really, I had C-section so I had C-sections with my kids and despite counseling patients, as a woman who has done C-sections on bajillions of patients about when they should expect to feel normal and start to be able to exercise, I found it so hard even to go on a walk, like the loss of core support. And that, I think, compounded like this extra negative body image because it's one thing Mm to gain weight and be pregnant and you can say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm doing this for the baby. But then suddenly this postpartum, I wasn't sleeping I was having a hard time breastfeeding. I wasn't confident in what I was doing. And then I really didn't feel like myself. So I felt this extra drive to lose weight or get in shape, but I couldn't because of the C-section situation. And then when I started to even be able to walk with the stroller, it was so hard. How do you try... And I, I wish somebody in hindsight had said please focus 0% on losing weight at the current moment. Just (laughs) literally like don't let that thought enter your mind I understand your body image that you don't feel like yourself and you're not going to be yourself. Your body's going to heal and just focus on trying to understand your new routine. Nobody said that. And I felt that pressure, maybe just from society or from everybody. What do you tell people about when they should start to incorporate exercise back or start to feel like themselves or
1: losing the baby weight,
0: kind of your approach to all of that stuff?
1: Yeah, I also just don't ever want people to focus on losing the baby weight. Um, For me, it was more, you know, getting out and getting my body moving really actually helped my mood. Um, Before I had Mason, I was doing CrossFit like three to four days a week until literally the day before he was born. And I also had two C-sections and I was definitely not prepared for the difficulty I would have returning to exercise after my c-sections. everyone's like, "Oh, six weeks postpartum, you'll be good to go. Just get right back into it. And a hundred percent, that is not how it was. I did not feel comfortable like doing a push-up or anything until like three or four plus months afterwards. I actually like forced myself to go on a walk. maybe maybe it was like three weeks after having Mason. And I went with a friend we ended up walking maybe three miles on accident because we were just talking. We both just had babies and I regretted it so much. I bled and bled and bled for like two weeks after that. I was in so much pain after my C-section and I was just like so hard on myself thinking I could just be exactly the same as I was right before this all happened. And that's just not the way it is. Like your body has to heal it's been through so much it birthed a baby like a human being <laughs> um it is I a major weight. surgery yeah a c-section yeah. is
0: a major sur- surgery you know like we just diminish it so much I think especially in this country and not maybe not really purposefully but we do to the thought that you should just be able to get over it and get back and I remember we got a jogging stroller and I kept being like when on earth will I jog with this child because just (laughs) pushing it and just standing straight up and down and pushing the child is tough. Like I'm actually supposed to like run and push this thing at the same time. I think that took me like, yeah, I never ran with my jogging stroller. (laughs) 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 And it's like, I was like, I just felt like I was so, you know, misguided in what my expectations should be in that period. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I
1: mean, we see like so many people like, which I mean, I think it's great for women to get back into their fitness, but when you're on social media and you see people working out and saying, Oh, I'm losing the baby weight or I'm doing this program or that program, but you don't know like how far postpartum they are. You're not thinking about that. You're just thinking, Oh my gosh, I should be doing that. Even if you're, you know, just six weeks out. And they might be six months out, they might be nine months out. So I feel like there's just this comparison game. And it's really hard, you know, to just be almost just be in your your body and yourself at that time.
0: I completely agree. I think the comparison game is high across the board for all women. But I really feel like there's this extra interest in the postpartum period. There's so much algorithm push when you started saying like, here I am pregnant and here I am not pregnant or nine months in and nine months out. And I want to tell people, man, nine months out, you should just look not, you should not be back to your normal self. Like you are adjusting (laughs) life and you're probably always, you're going to be a new person. You're growing into a better person. You're not supposed to get back to that person you were before. You're going to be different. I want to ask you before we get off, you know, this has been a crazy year, right? And the past 10 plus months have just been outrageous. You have been seeing COVID patients, you've been isolating, you got pregnant, you had a miscarriage, you had a COVID, you had a DNC, you've gotten vaccinated. This has been a really crazy year for you, (laughs) right? I mean, I mean, for everybody, but you know, what are kind of your, thoughts or what, what do you want to share about your experience for people who don't know it, you know, about your decision to try to get pregnant during a pandemic and thoughts on miscarriage. Was this your first miscarriage that you'd had or, you know, I've, it's, you were so open and honest about it. And I just want to commend you for that because that's something that there is still too many people who are just suffering really silently about. And, you know, you were all over social media being so upfront and honest. It was so vulnerable and beautiful and I know that you're helping more people by sharing that side of you, but what do you want to say about that whole story? Or what do you want people to know?
1: Yeah, this year sucked. I mean, <laughs> there's no better way to say that. And I know like it sucked for almost everybody. I mean, everyone's been through some hard stuff this year, but for me particularly, it's been bad. Um but I think that the one thing that I learned from kind of talking about my postpartum depression journey is how much sharing your story helps other people. And I knew from the moment I got pregnant that I wanted to, you know, share the news with everybody, whether, you know, things would work out good or they would not work out because, because if they didn't, then I I might help somebody else or might help somebody not feel so alone and the amount of messages that I got from other people saying, oh, my gosh, like I was also just had my ultrasound and we were measuring two weeks behind or, you know, I just lost my baby, too. And I haven't told anybody that I was even pregnant. And I don't know who to talk to like that stuff, just, you know, in one way, breaks my heart. But in another, really justifies my why as to why I'm in this space at all is to show women that they're not alone and that other people have like walked this path before them. So, I mean, in December, I lost my baby and then I got COVID and I realized I needed a DNC, but I couldn't get one cause I had COVID. And so no one would see me. And so I had to sit there knowing that, you know, my baby wasn't alive for six weeks. It's
0: so unfair. I mean, on so many levels, but when you talk about, and I feel like you've suffered from this pandemic so much because, you know, your hours got insane trying to take care of COVID patients. You weren't able to see anybody and get help that you needed. And then this part of it's like not the icing on the cake. It's like the straw that broke the back. You know, here you are experiencing something that's extremely traumatic for everybody. You know, when I've been there, it's terrible. And then knowing you need this procedure, yet you can't have it because of COVID and yet risking your health, you know, risk of infection and just mentally wanting to get to that next stage of the game. I don't know how you did it, Shelly. I'm so, you know, I love you so much. And I think that... That strength really is inspiring pe- more people than you know because we are seeing people who need procedures put on hold because they have COVID or or surgeries are canceled. You know, and it really starts to push the line on what is elective and what's not elective, right? And yeah, I don't know. I just want to tell you that from my standpoint, you're amazing, and I really do think that you are braver than I was. When I went through my, you know, miscarriages, I didn't tell anybody, you know, I didn't tell anybody. And I was in, just like you said, people on, online. I, I didn't, then I did not told anybody I was pregnant. How was I going to tell them that I had lost the baby? How was I going to get any of that support? So the fact that you've been so open and honest with your story, I think is showing this is real life. This is what you go through. This is how things are happening. And even worse, this is real life in a stupid pandemic, right? Um, where are you in this process now? So you're healing up from things. And, you know, I know you're about to take kind of a career transition. You want to tell us some of the exciting things that are coming for you
1: Yeah, so I am really excited. Um, I spent my 10-day isolation (laughs) in a hotel room by myself, away from the kids, because there's no way they would leave me alone in my house. (laughs) It was really hard to be away from them, but I tried to make the best of it, and I worked on my online course, Mastering Motherhood, um, and really my goal for this is to just kind of distill down all the information that new moms need for that first year whether it's about breastfeeding, bottle feeding, pumping, sleep, just like their general health, doctor's visits, packing your diaper bag, all that stuff. There's so much misinformation out there or just too much information out there that I kind of want to package it really nicely for new moms so that they're not so overwhelmed. And so that I've kind of pre-released it this week, but uh, February 15th is going to be the big, big release day. So it's coming. I'm so excited
0: before we get off and you tell everybody where to find you. I just want to say, I remember sitting with you by a pool in like February of, was it last year? Was it the- No, was it, two years ago. It was two it was, years it was, ago. It was right.
1: February was of ninth. Was or? No, no.
0: It, it was like February of like 2019. And, or March, I don't remember. But anyways, and I, we were talking about what what's going to happen in the course of our lives. And I had just switched jobs. and Of course, I've switched yeah. again. And you were talking about this vision of what you wanted to do then. And I'm just so proud of you for saying this is kind of where you're coming. And you've been putting your heart and soul into this for so long. So you were going to change so many new mamas' lives by putting your truth out there and your knowledge. And I'm just so, so inspired by you. And I really hope everybody, you know, passes this along to people who are especially, you know, new moms or kind of at that juncture where they need more support and just want to have a community for this motherhood stage. Where can everybody find you? Tell us where all we can find you. And thank you for being here.
1: I am Dr. Mommy MD everywhere, uh, doctor spelled out. Um, and that's my website too. So I keep it real simple for you.
0: <laughs> I love it. Okay, Shelly, thank you so much. I love
1: you, Nat.
0: Bye. Right, bye. Huge thanks to Shelly for coming on and being really vulnerable and sharing part of her story. I also want everybody to know that it's okay to need help, it's okay to ask for help. We're gonna be diving into specifics on some of these topics even more in the upcoming year because I think that the postpartum transition is something that we don't talk about enough as women. And you know me, I like to break down the stigma and talk about those hard things because I've been there. I had no idea what to expect. The transition, especially as a working mom, was so incredibly difficult. And the reality that I was expected to show up back at work and act like I hadn't undergone this major life transition was truly shocking to me. I want to thank you all so much for all of your love and support. You can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD, or you can go check out the YouTube channel as well, Natalie Crawford, MD. Thanks for listening.